Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up to four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time. Joan Bartlett and I'll be here until six o'clock this evening. On the program today, Professor Tillman Ruff is just back from the UN meeting a wonderful historic meeting to set the scene for banning nuclear weapons in the not-too-distant future, it is hoped. Also, I'll be playing an interview or a talk that was given on the Melbourne Unitarian Church, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before, with a, a member of the ETU talking about the history and the present time with the CUB dispute. What Trump might mean for the US and the world with Professor Emeritus James Petrus. The UN climate change meeting in Mexico. Lots going on there. Lots um, happening with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. And part two of the interview with Dr Ralph Newmark celebrating the 40th birthday for the Institute for Latin American Studies at La Trobe University. But first, no, there is no Mr. Kevin Healy this week. He has a bad cold. He hoped to be coming, but it got the better of him. So we send our best wishes out to Kevin and trust that he'll be back very soon. So let's hear from Tillman. Last month, UN member states voted overwhelmingly to start negotiations to ban nuclear weapons adopting a landmark resolution to launch negotiations next year on the treaty, a legally binding instrument to prohibit nuclear weapons, leading to their total elimination. History was made, and unfortunately, Australia was on the wrong side. Professor Tillman Ruff, founding chair of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons and co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of War, was present at the historic UN meeting. I spoke with Tillman yesterday following his return from the US and pointed out that this was a meeting of the first committee of the UN General Assembly which deals with disarmament and international security measures and asked him to describe the physical and perhaps the emotional atmosphere of a meeting of representatives of world nations. It's in a huge big room, is it? Yeah. What's yeah. it like to be in a room like that? Look, it's pretty exciting, but in some ways it you know, depends on what's happening. They're quite extraordinary meetings because you know, the, the way that it physically is laid out and in terms of representation, you know, every country gets one vote, you know, whether it's a tiny Pacific Island nation like Nauru with, you know, 15,000 people or whether it's uh, China with, uh, or India with, you know, over a billion people. And sometimes people are juxtaposed in strange ways. So, for example, because Tanzania is called the United Republic of Tanzania, it actually sits between the United States and Russia. And that must be a fairly uncomfortable position a lot of the time. Puts Australia and Austria always sitting next to each other, even though on the nuclear weapons issue, Austria is, you know, the absolute shining star in terms of global humanitarian-based leadership, and Australia is unfortunately still 
an absolute laggard on the wrong side of history. So it, it does sort of make strange bedfellows in the room in the sense that people are all put in together. Where the first committee meets is called committee room four, so it's down in the basement of the building, so there's no natural daylight. You can't tell whether it's day or night. But thankfully, they do um, allow for civil society people, so non-government representatives, to be in the room. So you can be there and hear everything that's going on. A lot of it is fairly tedious. A lot of it is sort of set-piece statements. A lot of it isn't really about creative dialogue and debate to try and progress issues. A lot of it's about sort of fixed nation-state positions, and there was an awful lot of sparring and between the Middle Eastern countries that are on different sides, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Israel... There's an awful lot of sparring these days between Russia and um, the US, unfortunately. And there's, so there's those sorts of regional and national rivalries that um, you can't escape from. But at the same time, it is the crucial body where all of the world's nations are represented. Everybody gets a voice. And occasionally, historic things happen, like this recent vote to start negotiations on a nuclear weapons ban treaty. It was absolutely electric to be in the room at that time. A lot of people were very nervous beforehand and enormously relieved afterwards. It was uh, a really historic moment. Was there really a doubt that it would happen, the vote went that way? Yes, I think there was real doubt till right at the end. I mean, we counted, like we being international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons and there were many campaigners there over the month of the nuclear weapons debates and then the gap till the voting on the nuclear weapons resolutions. So lots of people trying to convince governments to vote yes, to be in the room, to realise the importance of this, to convince their friends and allies to be there and to vote yes. But there was absolutely relentless and fierce pressure from the nuclear-armed states to try and shut this down. The US, France, UK especially active, uh, Russia also sort of throwing its weight around, and they really tried to bludgeon a lot of countries, and particularly small countries that are vulnerable because of uh, foreign aid or trade deals or... There was a lot of pressure that was applied, extraordinary pressure. I mean... And countries complained about it. You know, every single country was met by delegations from the nuclear armed states and admonished to vote against this. And they managed to peel lots of countries off in every global region. For example, Latin America, which traditionally is the most solid block of countries that support disarmament measures. They were the region that established the first nuclear weapons free zone in, in, 19, in 1966, I'm sorry. So long time ago, they were way out in front and they've been leaders on disarmament and the whole of the 33 nations of the CELAC, it's called the Regional Community of Latin America and the Caribbean states, joined the humanitarian pledge committing to fill the legal gap to ban and eliminate nuclear weapons, you know, as a regional block. But they were peeled off, you know, Nicaragua that you wouldn't expect and Guyana abstain some of the smaller and more vulnerable countries Haiti and Honduras didn't vote there were eight or ten African states that were peeled off you know the 54 group African unity uh, on this issue Pacific Island countries copped a lot of pressure uh, particularly those that are economically dependent on the US so some of them couldn't vote yes even though they wanted to 
I'm proud to say that Southeast Asia, the 10 countries of ASEAN, were the only regional group that were able to hold firm and every country voted yes. But given that pressure, there was real uncertainty about how this vote would go and by what sort of majority. And if it had have just kind of scraped through, I think it would have been less clear and strong result with a lot less sort of political resonance. So we were told that the US wanted that their target was less than 100 states voting for it. We were counting on around 105 definites and another 20 hopefuls. So the final vote of 123 nations in support of starting negotiations on a treaty to ban nuclear weapons starting already in March of next year, of 123 voting for, uh, was actually the upper end of our sort of range of expectations and um, I think an extraordinarily good result in the face of the very formidable pressure that countries were getting. I'm sure you're not proud of Australia's role. No, I'm not. Look, it was, you know, disappointing, embarrassing to be an Australian. History is made like that. I mean, this is the first time that that, that committee of the, which, in which all nations are represented kind of grasped the nettle, and it was really a revolt of global humanity. You know, the policy and around nuclear weapons and, you know, if and when what little bits of disarmament might happen has really much been totally dependent on what the nuclear armed states are willing to do and when they're willing to do it in the past. And this was the first time that the countries without the weapons sort of took the bit between their teeth, you know, grasped their courage and actually did something that will have profound influence. They obviously can't get rid of weapons that they don't own, but they can fill the legal gap that leaves the last weapon of mass destruction, you know, the most destructive of all weapons, nuclear weapons, the only weapon of mass destruction not banned by an international treaty. They can fix that. And they can do that whether the nuclear armed states like it or not. And that's what's really was exciting about this. And there was all these sort of doomsday arguments that particularly aggressively the Russians but all of the nuclear armed states were making, you know, that this is propaganda, that this is hasty, that this will bring chaos, that the Russians actually used extraordinary, almost threatening language saying this would be fatally destructive with the words they used to the to the global sort of security regime, that it will completely upset the apple cart and undermine the non-proliferation treaty and set back disarmament and increase the risks of conflict and all sorts of outrageous claims that really don't hold any water. But we got a NATO document that um, the US wrote to all its NATO allies after the nuclear weapons debates and shortly before the vote, uh, which is really very revealing. And it basically said that didn't mention any of the arguments that the US was making in public and at the United Nations about why banning nuclear weapons was a bad idea, despite the fact that they, you know, think that the bans on every other kind of awful weapon, chemical, biological, landmines, cluster munitions are fine. We can't do that for nuclear weapons. None of those arguments featured in this document, which instructed all the NATO members, and presumably Japan, Australia and South Korea, you know, got the same sort of very firm instructions from Washington, that you must vote no again to this resolution and if negotiations happen you mustn't join them. And why? Because 
a whole range of the proposed elements of this ban treaty would basically interfere with NATO reliance on nuclear weapons and the legitimacy of NATO deployments and war planning with nuclear weapons, i.e. the reason that they oppose it is because the treaty would do exactly what it's intended to do, which is to delegitimise possession of nuclear weapons. And that's the reason why they oppose it, and the reason that Australia opposes it is very much the same. It's because we're not serious about disarmament while we claim that nuclear weapons are central to our security, US nuclear weapons. So Australia, unfortunately, was really on the wrong side of history here. The final voting on this resolution will happen at the um, full General Assembly when there are five different committees that work over this period of sort of October, November, that where really all of the argy-bargy and debates and sort of staking out positions and negotiating happens. And then in the last couple of days of the Assembly, usually in sort of a week into December, all of those resolutions that have been discussed in the various committees are kind of rubber stamped, you know, just one after the other with no debate or explanations of vote. They're sort of run through just to kind of formalise that from the whole General Assembly. Very occasionally there's a couple of votes, one or two or three votes that change. You know, if there was a change of government or if a government wasn't in the room at the committee vote but wanted to register its vote at the end. But there's really no way that this is not going to get up and the negotiations, you know, won't start. There would still be time for Australia to to change its vote, get on the right side of history and, and be in a much stronger more credible position to contribute constructively to the negotiations that are going to happen. The Australian government hasn't yet decided, um, at least not publicly revealed, as to whether they plan to attend the negotiations to join them. Japan has committed to do so, despite the fact the US would prefer they didn't. There's also, yeah, there's a little bit of... um, you know, the solidity of the nuclear allied states has been somewhat broken just as the opposition, just as the support for the ban treaty was fractured by this extraordinary pressure from nuclear armed states. So the Netherlands was the only NATO state which abstained from the resolution, didn't vote against it. Really a tribute to the extraordinary public and parliamentary pressure that, um, you know, that they've had on this, that people want their government to support a ban treaty. So it'll be a moment of truth, you know, progressively there'll be several moments of truth for Australia. It's really inconceivable that, you know, we would be leaders on the Chemical Weapons Convention and be proud members and signed up to all of the other treaties that ban indiscriminate, inhumane weapons and not, you know, eventually get on the right side of history with regard to the worst weapons of all. But um, there's certainly no signs of that... uh, of that happening with the current government. It's pleasing and welcome that the Labor Party last year changed its national policy platform to specifically support negotiations for a treaty banning nuclear weapons. You don't hear much about that from Labor leaders, but, you know, that's a good and important start. But we really need, you know, this really should be a a bipartisan issue. This is a, you know, the ultimate humanitarian issue. This is something that should be above party politics. So I've no doubt that Australia will eventually need to sign this banned treaty that's coming, but it could do so much with much more dignity and, and, uh, you know, by making a positive contribution, by getting involved and 
and supporting it now rather than later. But So we, we've still got plenty of work to do here, I'm afraid. Talk more about the role of ICANN and IPPNW and the Red Cross and other members of civil society in supporting this resolution. The role of civil society has really been critical in making this happen and you know, I met with a whole lot of diplomats after the vote and without exception, every single one of them volunteered that, you know, you made this happen, ICANN made this happen. This was a partnership between governments and civil society, but it wouldn't have happened without you. Every one of them volunteered that. So I think that's something we really should be enormously proud of and celebrate and to realise that you know, organised civil society making a concerted effort, people working together can, working with governments that, you know, that, that, that do get the seriousness of this issue and the need to act is a very powerful partnership. So it was crucial to have the combination of pressure in capitals, questioning governments, what are you going to do with this vote, how are you going to vote and, and encouraging them to support it and having people in Geneva, in New York, sorry, to provide encouragement on the ground, make sure that they knew how important this was, make sure that they were in the room when the vote happened. The way the UN works, a lot of the smaller and poorer countries, you know, don't have a lot of diplomatic capacity. They might only have two or three people in the mission in New York, and they've got to cover all the different activities uh, across the UN family. And while first committee was meeting and all of the other committees were also meeting and a whole bunch of other activities are going on. So they've got to prioritise their time and often run between committee rooms for votes, you know, and spread themselves around, try and be as efficient as possible. So, And they often don't have particular expert knowledge of nuclear disarmament. You know, they've got to cover a whole raft of things. They often don't have strong expert support at home in the capital either. And so... Being able to provide them with information about what's going on, about the sort of contributions that it would be useful for them to make from the floor, about when the vote's coming up and you know what other countries are planning and when they need to be in the room is crucially important. One of the excellent things that um, MAPW, the Medical Association for Prevention of War, did was um, the MAPW Peace Fund contributed funds to bring Abaca Jane Madison, who's a former senator from the Marshall Islands, which suffered US nuclear testing in the in the 50s and 60s. And um, her family's from Rongelup, and all the people there had to be evacuated for the bikini test back in 1954. So she's a nuclear test survivor. And having her there and being able to visit all of the Pacific Island missions in New York encourage them to support this, realise its importance and to be in the room was absolutely crucial. Every Pacific Island country was in the room for this first committee vote. That's probably never happened before and it happened because Abaca was there. So having people in New York doing that very well-coordinated outreach to governments was crucially important. And the whole thing, the whole basis for this movement that led to this historic resolution started back in 2010 when the International Red Cross Committee presidents you know, called in the diplomatic corps in Geneva and said, for humanitarian reasons, we need to get rid of nuclear weapons urgently and this is going to be a major 
revitalised priority for, for us, for the world's biggest humanitarian organisation. And that really paved the way for the first mention at the NPT, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Conference that year, to refer to the catastrophic consequences of any use of nuclear weapons. And that really provided the basis for the humanitarian conferences in Norway and Mexico and Austria in 2013 and 14 that drew attention and updated the evidence about just how bad any nuclear weapons use would be and the fact that the risks were growing and no effective response was possible and that there was this legal gap and that provided the basis for the UN open-ended working group that worked over the last year to recommend a path forward that recommended precisely what this resolution that was passed consisted of which was the commencement of negotiations on a new treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons and provide for their elimination starting in a couple of months. So this sort of six-year process has civil society has been absolutely crucial and you know the, the vote was enormously welcomed by Greenpeace International, by Amnesty, by you know by other civil society partners who hopefully now that the negotiations will start will broaden the the really wide church we need to to get the strongest possible treaty in the shortest possible time. Just finally, Tillman, we have to acknowledge that the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons began right here in Melbourne? It did. It was um, proposed by a wonderful obstetrician in Malaysia called Ron McCoy, who was uh, actually here over the weekend to attend a wonderful celebration for the life of the uh, dearly loved, recently departed Bill Williams, who was also one of the founders of, of ICANN. And, and it was really a small group of us in a decade ago, in 2006, who, who inspired by the success of the campaign to ban landmines to achieve a treaty to ban those weapons, said we need a similar sort of broad unifying campaign for a ban treaty for nuclear weapons. And, um, and it started in Melbourne and it's now got uh, 440 partner organisations in almost 100 countries and has been the main civil society coordinating vehicle that really has helped to make this happen. So, yes, I think that's a terrific achievement and something of which we should be very proud. Well, congratulations, Tillman, and I'm sure that the, the hard work is going to continue until the next vote comes along. It will. There's always more steps that are needed, but this was a pretty big one. Thanks very much, Ken. And that's Associate Professor, Associate Professor Tillman Ruff from ICANN. And I can remember back in 2006-07, the lunch they had at Parliament House to open, to found the international campaign for the ending of nuclear weapons and had no idea at that time that 10 years later it would be on the horizon. Celebrate International Day of People with Disabilities, all day, Saturday, 3rd of December, with 3CR. The word disability is so broad now and it's come so far. There's so much ability within disability these days. Join us from 12 to 4pm for local news and views from the city of Yarra. Next, the long-running dispute at Carlton United Breweries. This is a recording of a talk given at the Melbourne Unitarian Church last Sunday week by ETU organiser Steve Diston. 
bit of a history and then talk our way through the dispute to where we're currently at today in the dispute. This brewery, CUB, once a proud, iconic Australian brand, was bought out a few years ago by a big multinational company called Saab Miller, a South African entity. And they're not very good at paying taxes and turnover of $4 billion. Zip. So nothing for pensions, nothing for Medicare, education, infrastructure. Sort of speaks volumes for their attitude towards the community straight off the bat. They've just been bought out in a $110 billion merger with the world's largest brewer. And like every industry, these big multinationals, they tend to use the market share that they get for bad, not good. They operate at huge scales of economy, which enables them to make vast profits, yet they don't seem to want to share that with people and they don't want to seem to pay taxes. So they turn their nose up at the social contract and a social conscience that a company of that size should have. Because they've been bought out by AB InBev, where they haven't had many substantial holdings in Australia for long, so I can't give you an update on there, how they pay tax, but I wouldn't hold my breath for a few tax dollars out of them either if I was you. So we have this gigantic, huge multinational brewer that buys out Australian iconic brands such as VB, Carlton Draft, Pure Blonde, you know, a whole host of them. There's, there's many, many, many beers. And there's also spirits and ciders, etc. We had a, a new manager come in about five years ago to Victoria. Now, Victoria, I don't know if anyone else has spent much time working interstate around Australia or overseas, but we are the bastion of union strength in this country, in Victoria. This is the home of the first eight-hour day in the world here. It's something we have a very proud heritage of unionism in Victoria. It's not like that necessarily all around Australia and overseas. We had a new factory manager who came to Victoria and he said his aim was to break down the culture of unionism at this site. And what we saw on June the 10th was the start of his little campaign. But we had just signed a contract with this company for three years before this dispute started. Wage security and certainty for three years. We had it, the company had it. This was all meant for nothing. We weren't informed, but the company even as they signed on the dotted line, CUB, had gone and sought ways to break down the conditions that they had just agreed to. And how that played out, how that manifested, was on June the 10th, the night before, all the workers out there, so I represent the electricians, we also have the fitters as well. So your modern beer factory, it's not, you know, Oompa Loompas filling up kegs, it's all machinery, huge machinery. One of the fillers, for example, fills up 1,100 bottles per minute to give you an idea of the sort of scale and intensity of this sort of manufacture. It all relies on the machinery running and running well. So the people who maintain it are a very important cog in that big machine in a brewery. Now, I represent the electricians and the fitters are also in this dispute with us. On June the 9th, they rang the workers at about 5 o'clock, 5.30, and they said, tomorrow you're not coming to work. You're going to a hotel tomorrow morning. We have a town hall meeting. So, of course, the boys rang me up and said, look, what's going on? We all came out to that hotel the next morning. We were promptly told everyone is terminated, effective immediately. Your tools are still on the site. We have a list of people here. If you'd like to reapply for your jobs, the ones that we have on the list here, we have a cab charge voucher for you for the ones that had come off night shift, so they've worked all night, and this was their, their morning. You can go up to this office to program and reapply for your jobs. Now, there was union representatives in the room, myself being one, and the first thing we said, look, hang on, who's the employing entity and which is the new contract that these blokes will be working under? Weren't told anything. 
They said these guys will find out all that stuff when they apply, when they reapply for their jobs. Now there was 907 years of combined experience from that workforce of 55 blokes. 907 years. Some of them have been working there since they were teenagers. Some of them are second and third generation brewery workers. They've been going to the same place their whole working lives, many of these guys, to be told suddenly you have to reapply for your jobs, some of you. The guys are all pretty good unionists there. We stuck together and the guys put up a motion. We don't accept any of this until the company sits down with our union representatives and finds out what's actually going on. So the company refused to do so and it actually took a week. We filed some paperwork immediately and uh, we ended up in the Fair Work Commission. When we arrived in the Fair Work Commission, we found out the actual EBA, which is a contract of employment, for those who aren't familiar with the terminology, in place was the award wage plus 50 cents. It was about $21 for the electricians and about $20 for the fitters. Not a fantastic wage for a highly skilled person working at a brewery that pumps out millions of dollars of profit every week. So the boys weren't too happy about that, and the employer was a little-known entity called Catalyst Recruitment from Western Australia. And what actually ended up coming out of the shadows, we had a good investigative journalist, one of the few that seems to be left in this country, who worked for the ABC, that uncovered what had actually happened in the lead-up to this. There were six employees in Western Australia that two years ago voted on an agreement. That agreement had sat dormant on a shelf, waiting for the labour hire company to utilise it to break down some conditions somewhere. The person who voted as the employee representative for that agreement and signed off on these conditions, they were all casuals, mind you. He worked for the company for less than a week. And when the investigative journalist interviewed this young bloke, he was a student, he said, look, I was hard up for money. She says, do you understand what you were signing? No idea. Dad got me the job. I was moving boxes around a golf course. So it gives you an idea the democracy that we actually see in this democratic society when it comes to our workplace rights. We have a so-called democracy, but the main institution in our society, companies, when it comes to democracy, that all finishes at the door. So we had six casual workers vote on the futures of 55 people across the other side of the country. The scarier thing is that agreement could cover thousands of people in just about any single industry. Massive loophole in the Fair Work Act, one of many. June the 10th, we started a picket line. We said, well, we're not going back to work. We have no intention of, of giving away generations' worth of, of gains through the trade union movement. We're going to set up camp. You'll all remember winter was a very wet and cold winter this year. We started with a tent. And we all huddled in this tent. And when the wind blew and the rain howled down, uh, we had the apprentices hanging on to the poles to stop the tent from flying away because even the apprentices weren't spared in this. We had five apprentices who were cut off at the knees before their career even began and the company made it very clear to us they were not interested in having those apprentices finish their apprenticeships or employing more apprentices into the future. So, once again, more opportunities taken away from the next generation. Anyway, we started with a tent and we weren't sure exactly what was going to happen. We were two weeks out from the federal election and we presumed that we were set up. We were being set up to be pawns in this argument about trade unions being out of line. We were filmed around the clock. There was a security contractor had been taken on by CUB and they sat on the third storey of a building across the road with a camera and they filmed us 24 hours a day. They had a whole army of thugs, very big blokes, all dressed in black with their beanies and their hoodies and everything, strung out along the street, keeping an eye on us. 
And lo and behold, buses came with black plastic all over the windows with a replacement workforce mostly flown in from Western Australia. So they were trying to provoke us into blockading the place or doing something, who knows, but um, in this day and age, that will make you a deregistered union pretty quickly and a bankrupt one at that. So we had to sit there and watch these people come in, these professional scabs, from interstate and some that had crawled out of some cracks here in Victoria. Most I got a lot of phone calls leading up to this of electricians saying, look, we know there's, there's a picket line on there and we're not interested in doing this, just thought you should know. And we sat there. So as you can well imagine, we give them a bit of a spray on the way in and very soon there was court orders which stopped us from saying different things. The word scab was one of the first things banned. So we were not allowed to call a spade a spade we're prohibited from calling these people scabs, which is, it's a, you can look it up in a dictionary, you know. It's got a history that goes back to the 1700s. So the Freedom of Speech Brigade, Andrew Bolton, that were nowhere to be seen, funnily enough, when it came to our freedom of expression to protect our jobs and our livelihoods. And furthermore, we were stopped from, we weren't allowed to film or photograph or approach or talk to or in any way, shape or form all of these people who we had no idea who they were or anything else. This was unfortunate in the fact that I became a bit of a target on this picket line. I don't know if you've picked up on it now, but I don't mind speaking. And we had a a ute with four gigantic megaphones, and we started launching a sort of a psyop, sort of like the North Koreans do across the border. You know, what's happening here is wrong. You're being used as pawns by big industry. This is just to break the Australian standard of living and way of life, yada, yada, yada. I became a bit of a target pretty quickly, started receiving some death threats. My missus was approached at her work, you know, all sorts of things that were way out of line. I was assaulted on the picket line, whole host of things, you know, that, to be honest, in this day and age, we get it a lot lighter than in previous years. So, you know, I can't complain too much. Still got both my kneecaps. Anyway, we realised after a few weeks, as we started getting into six and seven weeks, we're going, all right, well, this isn't your average dispute. There's a bit more to this. Silence from the company. Refused to acknowledge our existence, except constantly trying to drag us into the courts in every way, shape and form they could. They tried to ban us from being able to have our, our ute there, anything. So we thought... Let's dig in. It's pretty cold. Let's get a bit more comfortable. So we got some trucks down there, some rental furniture trucks. We ran around to hard rubbish and we picked up a whole heap of nice leather couches and broken down couches and everything. And we started to really get our picket line going. We upgraded our fire, we upgraded our barbecue and we started hosting rallies. We started having a weekly rally on Thursday. So we had speakers come from all walks of life. We had um, from politicians to trade unionists. Uh, We actually had Father Bob come down from church. We had a whole heap of different people some B-class celebrities come down and speak and we started to gather a bit of momentum and people started to see what was happening. Once they heard of the injustice, it's pretty black and white, people started rallying to our side. We happened to have a conference that we only have every two years in the ETU, so we had about 500 of our shop stewards in one place. I spoke at that and we put up a levy that every ETU member would donate $20 per week in solidarity to their comrades down at CUB. Pretty lucky we had that conference and so we were able to start really paying these guys and making sure that no one was starved back to work, no one lost their house to try and keep their relationships you know, financially stable as much as they could. You can't do much about the emotional aspect of it, it's pretty hard on a picket line and we started building things up. 
The CFMEU came to our aid. You hear a lot about things about how they're terrible people and all the rest of it in the um, corporate media. Great bunch of blokes. They built what we call now the, the Tower of Power, some scaffold. It's about three storeys high. If you haven't been down there, it's a sight to behold. We draped flags from all the supporting unions that were, were donating money and giving us moral support, and the dispute wore on. They still refuse to talk to us in any way, shape or form and you know, we're getting to about 14 weeks at this stage and we're thinking it's a pretty long dispute, <laughs> this isn't your average. And we decided, well, let's dig in some more. So we got in touch with the MUA, most of you may remember the Patrick's dispute back in the day, and they donated us, us some shipping containers. So we started getting these shipping containers there and decking them out. Because one of the things on a picket line when you're sitting there all the time, it's boring. You know, it's frustrating and you've got a bunch of tradesmen who are used to running around, fixing things, doing things with a hand. So we put them to work. We started fitting out these containers, kitchen, plastering, painting, you name it. We got some artists to put some murals. We got a, a street artist. He's done some fantastic mural work on the sides of our containers. There's more to come. It, it's really worth seeing. And Fort Justice took shape. So we had the Tower of Power and Fort Justice. And we named the whole thing Camp Freedom. So we started to get you know, a few laughs around the place and things started to look a little bit up. As time wore on, obviously we had to amuse ourselves in different ways. The Olympics came about. So we managed to somehow, in the middle of the night, a power supply from one of the power poles appeared in the black of night and we had power. Fantastic. It didn't take long for the Herald Sun and the Liberal Party to bring that up and get rid of that. So... We put solar panels on top of Fort Justice. <laughs> we got 20 electricians, and we thought, why not? Well, I think we've got the world's first uh, five-star energy-rated picket line. We got in some help from overseas. We enlisted, he's a big boy, he's about four metres tall, four to five metres tall, Scabby the Rat, his name is. We had an interim order saying we weren't allowed to call the scabs scabs. We weren't allowed to call them rodents or rats either. So we got an inflatable rat who's about five metres high. He's big. He's famous in the United States for the Teamsters unit, and we got him there. So we've got this gigantic rat. We've got a, a tower of scaffold. We've got shipping containers. You can start to imagine the company weren't too stoked about this. They got a QC, not just your average run-of-the-mill lawyer, and started applying to the local council to try and pull all this down. The local councillor in our area who came to our aid, a man by the name of Stephen Jolly... What a great bloke. He moved heaven and earth to do what he could to support these local workers in his electorate. And you'll be pleased to hear we, um, after much frustration, managed to get a permit for the whole lot. So the company was spending tens of thousands of dollars on this QC to try and remove us. They went so far as to approach the Independent Commission Against Corruption to try and say that Steve Jolly was corrupt in his dealing. You can have developers carving up heritage-listed buildings and getting rid of parks, you know, without question. But as soon as a local councillor stands up for what's right in his electorate, the Independent Commission Against Corruption. So we could start to say there was no level that this company would not stoop to. But all the while, the message of the CUB55 was gaining traction in the community. We started to get some international recognition right around Australia. We had workers from every corner of the nation starting to put their hand in their pocket and help these blokes out. Because at the end of the day, it's not our infrastructure down there, it's not Fort Justice, it's not our speeches, it's not, you know, those hugs when the days are tough and sitting down and having a beer and, you know, patting the bloke on the back when he's saying his wife's going to leave him. At the end of the day, 
it's money that allows those guys to sit there and not lose everything, including their families. It's been pretty tough. We've had some births on the picket line. We've had a death. Unfortunately, one of the blokes, his 20-year-old son committed suicide just a couple of weeks ago. We had his funeral on Friday. There's had a couple, a couple of relationships broken down. You know, the, the human face, the victims, there is a cost to these disputes. And unfortunately, they've been coming out all through this dispute. We're now just past the 21-week mark, coming up to 150 days tomorrow. We don't know where this dispute will end, but what become extremely clear is that this is out-and-out out union busting. That's all there is. We know this because the main program, the main contractor that was involved in doing the dirty work at the start of this, when they had enough, because we gave it to them, we were down their office all the time with Scabby the Rat and everything, and we had a real crack at them on other job sites and things as well. They went to CUB and said, we'll cover all the wages and conditions. Not a problem. We just want this publicity to end. CUB said, no, we need to run this path to its conclusion. So we've got new management now in the company and we thought that was going to be a bit of a circuit breaker in order to bring this ridiculous dispute to an end. So far, that hasn't been the case. So at this point, we're heading towards Christmas and I've no doubt that we will be getting there pretty soon. What I didn't mention to you was the cost of it, you know, anywhere from $40, $50 a case to a slab of beer. The cost per case to come out that factory door that includes the glass, the labels, the materials, the labour and everything. About 18 months before the dispute, it was just over $4 a case. The guys got it down to $1.96 a case just before this dispute started. And their reward <laughs> was to be offered their jobs back at 65% less. Gives you an idea as to the lack of rationale or logic in this dispute. It is pure and utter greed. The last CEO received a $62 million bonus, bonus for his role in the successful merger of the two big beer companies. I'm yet to hear anyone in any way, shape or form be able to justify why working class people in the eastern suburbs need to subsidise the incomes of people who are liable to receive millions of dollars in bonuses alone. We haven't had it. It is pure and simple greed. It is purely and simply an attack on our way of life. It is an attack on unionism. It's an attack on the standard of living of workers in this country. And I tell you right now, if we lose this dispute, this will spread like a cancer. Today it's us, tomorrow it's you. Or potentially the workplace where your son works, your daughter, your, your wife, anyone. This is us, we're all in this together. And I think this dispute has actually come at a, at a very timely point in this country's path at the moment because now more than ever we have attacks on unions like you would not believe saying unions are not relevant saying unions no longer have a place in our society this dispute i think overwhelmingly has shown the role of workers acting collectively in order to protect their interests now more than ever when you have multinationals with billions of dollars in their pockets all we have as working people is each other and our solidarity You've been listening to Steve Distance, who's a organiser with the ETU down at um, down at the brewery down in Abbotsford. If you can help, why not go down to the brewery? I'm not quite sure of the the address, but it's a huge building down in Abbotsford, Carlton United Brewery. Or you could contact the ETU to 
financially helped them that way. And thanks to the Melbourne Unitarian Church for that interview. You can hear their program every Saturday Saturday morning at 10.30 here on 3CR. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. A million words have already been written and many more will come in the future regarding the 45th President of the United States. But one word resurfaces again and again during the campaign and that word is fascism. The word used to denounce Trump and warn of what is to come if he is elected. This morning I spoke with Professor Emeritus James Petrus in New York and while he makes it clear he does not and has not endorsed Trump, he argues that he is not a fascist. Well, it's very silly. I mean, the fact of the matter is fascists look at war and war is much more on the agenda with Obama and Clinton than it is for Trump. Trump has declared he wants to negotiate with China. He wants to negotiate with Russia. He objects to the wars in the Middle East. He has generally taken a more business-oriented than military-oriented position. We can also note that he has uh, gotten about 43% of the vote of women, and that uh, he's not a sexist in the sense that he sees the importance of uh, raising salaries, and that's what interests most women is the economic, not the fact that he uh, touched some women 10 years ago and that to raise that as an issue was absolutely silly. I think in general his politics as far as social issues is more concentrated on the economic dimensions rather than the identity politics. Now, he's also tied to uh, big business, but he's more of an an economic nationalist than he is a uh, globalist, at least that's in his rhetoric. However, having said all that, we know that his appointments that are coming up are going to be tied to Wall Street, some of them. Some of them have uh, a more uh, militarist policy than what he said. So there may be some very serious contradictions here between his uh, business orientation and some of the uh, uh, military-oriented uh, uh, appointees. In any case, both candidates were uh, uh, speaking from Wall Street. Both candidates were uh, involved with uh, political leaders that have uh, bellicose posture, but uh, at least there is a hope or a belief that Trump will be less 
militarily oriented and more uh, looking toward making deals, which is what his book is all about. He's uh, calls himself a great uh, business negotiator. All right. Well, taking all that into account, why is there such a backlash? Well, a backlash... Are you talking about these demonstrations? The media? Oh, the media, I think, uh, clearly uh, have been um, in the foreground of uh, the uh, military policies of the United States. I think the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, the four leading papers in the United States have been far more prone to uh, support wars, whether in the Middle East, uh, whether it's in uh, Asia. There is a disconnect here between the uh, financially uh, oriented press and uh, a military agenda. You won't find business people much more prone to look at deals with China than they are to follow the prescripts of the media here who are uh, looking for confrontations, and that also goes with Russia. Uh, The media have demonized Putin in a way that doesn't speak well for arranging some kind of negotiated settlements, whether it's Syria, Ukraine, or elsewhere. So uh, we have to say the press may speak about business matters, but uh, in their uh, columnists and editorialists, they're much more into demonology, particularly uh, Putin. I have an explanation for that. I I think the uh, press is uh, living in a forgotten era. They liked the period of the drunken son. Nielsen, who uh, allowed the country to be pillaged and uh, plunged into uh, the worst peacetime disaster in world history. Uh, They liked that. They liked the fact that there were swindlers and gangsters running the country and the U.S. were running a unipolar world. And, And I think they live in that time frame, that frozen period in time which was so devastating to Russia and allowed the U.S. to pursue wars everywhere with with impunity. And they lost that. Putin has rebuilt Russia, uh, has reconstructed their defense system, uh, and play a world role now. And uh, they're not happy with that. I think the media has uh, failed to keep up with the changes in in world history, and they've tried to influence policy by uh, presidents like Obama imposing sanctions on Russia, whereas uh, there is a good deal of uh, business thought against that. What's been the reaction of the Israel lobby? The Israeli lobby was uh, very deeply involved with Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton has declared herself numerous times as an unconditional supporter of Israel, has supported every uh, Israel uh, action against uh, Palestine, uh, Lebanon, uh, whatever. 
she has been in the forefront of uh, supporting the uh, Israeli lobby in the United States and has supported everything that they put on the table, including uh, trying to ban the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which has gained a great deal of influence and support in uh, Ireland and England and, and Canada and in part the United States. I think the uh, five biggest pro-Israel uh, businessmen poured into uh, Clinton's campaign uh, millions of dollars. They were very prominent in supporting her. Now, that's not to say that uh, Israeli, uh, pro-Israeli politicians and businessmen didn't support Trump. The yes, a minority probably did. I would say no more than uh, 15%. But Netanyahu uh, congratulated Trump. So I think in, in part they uh, bet on Clinton but they uh, are not distant from Trump, whose uh, son-in-law is a pro-Israel Zionist, and uh, he's expressed the support for some of Israel's more outrageous demands, like moving the capital from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which would be uh, very disruptive. Looking further into foreign policy, is it possible that the government of Venezuela might be able to breathe a little bit easier under Trump? I don't think so. I think uh, Trump is not in, in a uh, uh, interventionist mode. I don't think he supports Venezuela, but I don't think uh, he will promote anything very radical than what has already been in place with Obama. I think it's likely that uh, his uh, nationalist policies uh, precludes any active uh, intervention in Venezuela and perhaps may lead to uh, some attempt to uh, negotiate some kind of a uh, pact which allows uh, the government to proceed and uh, will go its own route. But uh, I think there's uh, deep problems in Venezuela which have polarized the country. The U.S. has supported that. But I don't think I see Trump playing a kind of Hillary Clinton uh, uh, policy, which he uh, intervened and overthrew the government in Paraguay and in Honduras. I think his policy will be uh, to avoid and uh, let the Venezuelans on their way. What about the situation for the black community and Muslim communities and and also the Latino community? We've got this Ku Klux Klan planning to celebrate. Let's start start with the current, very current realities. Trump made a statement Sunday in which he said, quote, we will be after three million illegal immigrants, among whom we will find out where the criminal and uh, gangs and drug addicts or drug pushers are. Now, 
3 million is not 11 million, first of all, which is what everyone says is the number of illegal immigrants. Secondly, if he indeed is only after criminals, I think he will have less than 200,000 illegal immigrants. So that is a a one-tenth of what Clinton and Obama expelled during uh, Obama's eight years in in office. Uh, That's what the mass media hasn't emphasized, that is forcibly jailing and expelling immigrants was a favorite activity of Obama and Clinton. They very forcefully engaged people breaking into houses and and grabbing people out of workplaces, etc. I don't think that Trump will exceed that. I I don't think uh, he will lessen that. But if he indeed follows his uh, announcement that he's only going after illegal immigrants who have criminal records or are involved in criminal activity, the figure will probably go down with uh, Trump rather than uh, figures that were originally uh, demagogically announced in his campaign. As far as the so-called wall, he talks about now building a fence as well as a wall, and uh, he probably will increase the border patrol. I think more than likely the main emphasis of Trump on immigration or immigrants is that he will very much tighten the border for cross-border, cross-frontier smuggling and crossings rather than be super active about people that are already here. What about the black community? Well, the black community was mobilized in part by the ministers and uh, the black bourgeoisie, despite the fact that Obama increased inequalities between wage workers, uh, black and white wage workers, and uh, the police violence increased uh, dramatically under Obama. So uh, I think that his record with blacks, despite his high percentage of voting from that was based on identity politics more than any substantial improvement in their economic or job prospects. I don't think the turnout for Clinton was as high as it was under Obama. I don't think uh, she had a very good record. The jail uh, incarceration record was uh, promoted by uh, her joint government with her husband, William Clinton, despite his claims uh, to to talk with and and share bread with blacks. His uh, real policies were very prejudicial to black. He uh, smashed the welfare programs, forced many black breadwinners, especially single parents, to abandon their children or lose any uh, compensatory transfers. So I I don't think Clinton created a a very uh, prominent and uh, positive relationship, and I think 
Trump would have to go some to match the uh, performances of Obama and Clinton. So I, I don't see him as playing a very big role in so far as just strictly on a race issue. But his policy is for improving jobs and improving wages and opportunities for workers. And the workers include about 30% of Afro-Americans. So if he makes any positive moves for wage workers, certainly uh, blacks will be part of that. This identity politics of talking in terms of people's uh, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual preferences, gender, has been a disaster because it has not dealt with the underlying economic issues. And the fact of the matter is, despite uh, Hillary's posturing and accusation of sexual verbiage of uh, the locker room talk of uh, Trump, it's a fact that over 45 or 43% of women went with Trump, not necessarily uh, any uh, liking for his... Uh, occasional sex talk about women, but his uh, promise to enlarge uh, job opportunities. But a lot of women are concerned about his ability to change the the role of the Supreme that Court? That is a serious issue. However, yesterday he didn't claim he supports it per se, he was asked about uh, a Supreme Court appointment that might prejudice the abortion laws at this time, the Roe decision. But I, I think he also backed off and said that he, he would likely see the court turn the issue of abortion into a, a state issue, a state regulation, which uh, means that only states which vote for abortion would have abortion, and those states which voted against it would not have it. And which uh, someone asked them, well, what are they supposed to do, the states that don't have abortion? And he said they can go to a, another state. That's a, a, a very unsatisfactory answer, but he's not the... Uh, total rejectionist that many people argue. Finally, James, the legacy of eight years of Obama. I don't think there's any legacy. The so-called uh, private corporate health plan is likely to be uh, illegalized and defeated. I think here Trump said he's going to keep some of the better features of it was that children under a certain age can stay on their family health plan, and uh, that the, the plan had some uh, good qualities to it. Now, the fact of the matter is that what was very negative for Obama's uh, legacy was the fact that uh, the schedule pricing for that health plan is going to go up 25%, and that is going to force some of the recipients to cancel their signing up for that particular plan. So if that goes out, uh, we're not clear what uh, Trump 
will substitute for it. Now, there's a lot of talk going around the U.S., not necessarily in any particular pocket, to bring in a national health plan and save a lot of money. If, if Trump is interested in saving money, uh, he could save it by introducing a kind of uh, uh, Australian version of a national health plan or a Canadian version. Uh, we'll have to see. Obama's foreign policy is an absolute disaster. I don't think he wants to talk about that as a legacy. The so-called turn to Asia it, it, it really was a, uh, a very negative policy, mainly uh, authored by Hillary Clinton, was to militarily threaten and circle China, uh, whereas most of the Asian countries are moving toward China. Uh, and some sort of an accommodation hoping to get the economic assistance and not the uh, military uh, overview. So I don't think he has anything positive to get from from that. And, of course, the U.S. bombing of Libya and uh, its support for the uh, invading uh, uh, Islamic extremists in Syria has certainly led to uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, deaths and uh, dispossession. So I don't think badly uh, claimed a Nobel Prize doesn't fit on Obama's legacy. So what does he have is uh, a, a little to claim as his legacy. An interesting perspective on the future for the US and perhaps for the world. That's Professor Emeritus James Petrus and I rang him this morning at his home in New York. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. The 22nd Conference of Parties, COP22, to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, concludes this Friday, and the venue for this year's meeting is Marrakesh in Morocco. And controversy is not far from the surface, Indeed, in one instance, it has erupted. I'm speaking with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. And Kate, do you know why Marrakesh, Morocco, was chosen for the UN meeting? I think they like to have a international profile. I don't know why it was chosen, but we know that Morocco has a very close relationship with France. I think that decision was made at the Paris Climate Summit. It's evident that not all were welcomed. The treatment and ultimate expulsion of the Vice President of the Pan-African Parliament must have taken a few people aback. Well, yes, indeed. I mean, she was apparently nearly through the formalities when a couple of people ran after her and said, could she come back? She nearly slipped through, as it were, before they realised, because she was travelling on a diplomatic passport. But then somebody realised that she was Sahrawi, and I think that has to be the reason, although nobody has said that, exactly that. Different reasons have been given for 
why she was held for 72 hours without any food or water. It's not really the way to treat a distinguished diplomat. And then they couldn't decide, I think, exactly what to do with her or where to send her. There was talk of going back to Algiers, there was talk of going to Madrid, there was talk of going to Mauritania, but uh, eventually she was expelled. So she, she didn't ever attend the conference. She was just not allowed to even enter the country at the airport. Does that mean that there were no Western Saharans at the conference then? I expect it does mean that. I haven't been able to find out if there's anyone else there. But she was not representing her country. She was representing the Pan-African Parliament, the African Union, which is the Parliament of the African Union, that opens a long-running saw, really, for Morocco because they walked out of the former body called the Organization of African Unity uh, when Western Sahara was admitted as a, as a member in 1984. It sort of bugs them because they want to be part of the African Union. I guess that they were actually, when you're going back to the question about why was it Marrakesh, I think that international organizations like this like having conferences in different continents so they can say there's been one in Africa, will be one in Latin America, there will be one in Asia, you know, this sort of thing. They want to be part of Africa, but once again, they painted themselves in a corner and they can't bring themselves to just uh, swallow their pride and, and join the African Union. Were there other representatives of the African Union participating? Yes, there were other members of the African Union participating and uh, I find it actually disappointing that the African Union hasn't made a formal statement, to my knowledge, about the expulsion of Selma Baruch, but they are participating and it is going on for another three days. It, it was running from the 7th to the 18th of November. 72 hours in an airport without food and water is quite a long time, Kate. It is, she, and uh, she said that she had two apples in her bag, so she was able to eat that, but that's all she had. Very poor performance on the part of the Moroccans. Well, as I say, it, this is a, an environmental conference. It's a climate change conference. Are there environmentalists permitted to be active in Morocco? I'm not too sure about that. There must be some, somewhere, I'm sure. But the major projects that are being undertaken are being undertaken by big business in conjunction with various companies belonging to the king, as always. He has a finger in every pie that might make money in Morocco. The people who are involved with alternative energy supplies in Europe have been eyeing off the Sahara generally and the countries where there is a lot of sun, a lot of wind, sources that they can exploit. So there's been a great big project to actually generate enough power to pipe it back to Europe. Now, I don't know that this is part of, of that project. That was called Desert Tech. But what they are doing currently is making huge wind farms in Western Sahara. They take credit for it, but they are actually in Western Sahara. I think there might be some in Warazat, which is Warazat in, uh, in Morocco, but it's a huge solar installation that is in Morocco itself. 
far as I know, most of the wind farms are not. The Western Sahara Resource Watch has been lobbying the United Nations because they got some money from their development fund. It has been lobbying the German company Siemens, which has been uh, working with the King's company called Nariva. Now there's another company called NL, I've forgotten where they come from, that is involved. They claim that they uh, don't have any comment on the political situation. They're just building an installation. We haven't cut any ice with that, but Morocco has clearly using these enterprises as a way of colonizing, uh, once again, installing their colonization of Western Sahara. Isn't this similar to Morocco using the phosphate and fishing and oil from Western Sahara, which is illegal because they are an occupying force? Oh, yes, that's right. It's slightly tricky because it is a renewable resource, the wind and the sun. It's not a a finite resource like the phosphate, but uh, it's still being done without the consent of the Sahrawi people. That's the the punch of the matter, and that is what has been said in international law should happen, that the, any exploitation and if any way that money is being made out of the country must have the consent of the Sahrawi people and they must also be the beneficiary. And are they being the beneficiaries in any sense? This is where it gets a little bit difficult because we say no, they say no, the, the Sahrawi say no, but Morocco says, well, we are putting the money into developing the country. We are building roads, we are building uh, infrastructure that will allow this energy to be used in the phosphate industrial process. You know, you can see why they say they're putting them, plowing the money back into the country, but so how do we say, no, we, we don't want that, we would rather have the control of it ourselves, yes. Are there people, the, the powers that be in Morocco, using this climate change meeting to their own advantage in other ways? Are they, Is there a lot of propaganda being put out? Oh, I think so. Uh, I have been myself focusing generally on the way in which it's affected Western Sahara. But I, I'm, I'm sure he's, they've been doing it in other ways as well. But the, 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 the fact that it was being taken advantage of by the Moroccan regime to promote their, well, what they think of as their ownership of Western Sahara is very clear. They organized a gala football match for the opening of the conference, El Ayoun, which is miles away from Marrakesh, miles and two, over a thousand miles away from Marrakesh, probably, with various golden oldies like Maradona. You know, that was all supposed to be part of the gala of the opening of the conference. And it was also by coincidence, they chose the date of the Green March, which was the moment when the former king, Hassan II, marshaled 750,000 Moroccans to march into Western Sahara and claim the land in 1975. And that was on the 6th of November, which was the day before the opening of this conference. Yet, normally the king gives a speech on those occasions. But this year, his speech was not in Morocco. It wasn't in El Ayoun. He went 
to Dakar, which is south of Mauritania, further down the west coast of Africa. It did look as if he was afraid that there would be a very big demonstration that might interfere with his propaganda. And of course, there's other reasons why there might have been a big demonstration if the king had done anything public like that in Morocco because of the recent death of a fish vendor, Mohsin Fikri, who was being pursued for an illegal catch of swordfish. And they threw, they confiscated his crates of fish and threw them in a rubbish bin. He dived in to get it back. I mean, it was a rubbish compactor, not a, not just a bin. And then somebody gave the order to switch on the compactor and that compacted the fishermen uh, as well as the fish, sparked huge protests. Is it known why the authorities used that drastic measure to settle it? an argument like that? No, I don't think they've given a satisfactory explanation at all. Probably just the whim of a policeman, but uh, the incident has been compared to the death of the Tunisian street vendor, Bouzazizi, who had his store and goods market store confiscated by police. But he set fire to himself, and then that started the what became known as the Arab Spring. I think the movement that that started in Morocco is called the 20th of February movement. That was the day when people called for protests in the street and they have said that they would continue to protest on the 20th, I think they said the 20th of every month until the king made reforms. Well, the king did make some promised reforms of the constitution, but some people said it was pure window dressing and other people have said it didn't actually make any difference to what was happening. So either ineffectual or minor changes. And so the 20th of February movement is still quite alive in Morocco. And I think that they are hoping that this might bring about a bigger change. Now, there is flooding along the border between Western Sahara and Morocco. I imagine that's um, a pretty unusual thing to happen. Oh, of course, it's 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 very rare. You normally drive around and, and see these places called uh, rivers or wadi. The the uh, uh, well, like like many rivers, so-called rivers, of course, in in central Australia, they are just a, a little land formation, if you like. You don't you never see any water, and that's how it is with the Sagwa El Hamra, this big river uh, to the on the northern boundary of Western Sahara uh, but when the big uh, rains do come uh, of course you soon see that it is a river uh, and it's currently in flood. The, the banks are very high in places but the river gets quite wide and right near the town of El Ayun or it goes through the town of El Ayun it's uh, been flooded. None of the authorities have done anything to alleviate the problems, but um, some Saharawis have made a sort of little self-help group that have been trying to help people who were stranded by the floods. A lot of people being stranded? Oh, I think so. I mean, they, they've, they've just cut off all the contact between north and south and because the river does run the whole width of the, con- uh, width of the country, right from Samara, near, uh, to the, which is only 100 kilometres from the 
wall, the um, military wall that divides Western Sahara between the occupied area and the liberated area is under the control of the Polisario Front on the other side. So uh, sort of, it runs right from there, right across from, uh, from east to, to west. So the road, if you couldn't go north from El Ayun, you'd probably you'd be trying to go around via Samara, but that road would also, is also blocked, I believe. Have they had similar rains in the east of Algeria where the camps are? They have, yes, exactly. They, they, they had another flood. There was one back in October last year, and now there's been another one this year. For them, it's in the camps, it's not quite so severe as it was last year. But, uh, yes, there's been more devastation, and the mud brick buildings just don't stand up to the rain and they tend to crumble. They're not fired, they're only, you know, sun-dried. A number of people have visited the refugee camps in Algeria in the past month or so, and I hope to be speaking to an Australian woman who visited there for the film festival, but Professor Damien Kingsbury also visited there and has spoken to a, a number of public meetings. You attended one, Kate? What did you learn? I did. Yes, exactly. And uh, yes, the other members of the Australian Western Sahara Association were attending the film festival, which is a very remarkable event held in the open air at night uh, on a big screen. But Damien went and he had a different kind of visit. He met a lot of people. He wanted to talk with the other politicians, the, the uh, leadership Polisario leadership and generally see the camps and understand how it was going on. He found the whole environment very desolate. He said there was absolutely nothing there. There's no trees. There's, it's just a very, it's not even a kind of romantic uh, sandy desert. It's a very rocky, hard ground desert. For the residents, life there is very boring. His idea of what could happen is that he says that you have to have a critical juncture what he calls a critical juncture for something to happen sometimes events just fall together something that you didn't think was going to be solved like apartheid in south africa or the berlin wall these things suddenly come to be often quite quickly and the uh, granting of uh, a referendum of self-determination for the East Timorese people is another case in point. Things just fell into place for them and they managed, not without a lot of pain and suffering and bloodshed, but they did achieve uh, independence. He's trying to imagine what kind of circumstances might suddenly solve the conflict for Western Sahara and I think he's not at all sure what might happen but he thinks that the fact that the President Abdelaziz passed away last year, sorry earlier this year, that might mean that there will be a change of ideas in the leadership. There might be a change in the leadership in Algeria if there are new thoughts about how to resolve the issue that might be a starting point but uh, the other 
player would be if the monarchy collapsed in Morocco. And if that happened, that would be certainly the kind of circumstance that could lead to real change for the Saharawis. Oh, the young people are very keen to have a change. They want to go back to war. But if that doesn't happen? If they don't go back to war, if nothing happens, I it, it is hard to see what, you know, they. it is hard for them because there really doesn't seem to be much future. But how but could it, they go to war? Yes, I mean, Damien did think about that. He thought that the Algerians wouldn't agree to them going to war and that they would have to have the agreement of Algeria, he thinks. Yes, it's a, it's a, a very frustrating situation for the young people, especially the ones who have trained abroad and they've got skills and they go back to the camps and they can't exercise the professions that they've been trained in, except some of them do. I mean, the, the Cuba trains a lot of... Uh, doctors and nurses and dentists and those people are working in the camps but one of our Australian resource companies uh, called Hanno Resources they've been working with the Saharawis and when they went over to prospect for minerals they managed to find some young Saharawis trained in geology and it was the first time that they'd been able to work in in the field that they were trained in. So they were very excited to help this uh, resource company. And it just points out the importance of advocacy groups around the world to keep that morale up for the people of Western Sahara. That's right, and and to also help to pressurise international opinion so that, you know, there are a lot of people who've never heard of this uh, struggle. It's partly because the Saharawis have been so well behaved they've never resorted to terrorism they haven't been blowing up tourists on the beach that would get hit the headlines like anything if they started doing something like that but they are convinced that of the justice of their cause and they keep thinking that because they are right they have to be given the right to self-determination but more and more, it seems that the United Nations is not really showing the muscle that would require that to happen. Are you encouraged by the new leader of the UN? The good thing about him is that he will certainly understand the situation of the Saharawis as well as anybody could because he was the High Commissioner for Refugees and I'm pretty sure he's been to the camps probably more than once, and if not, he certainly would know exactly what's going on there because the UNHCR is the main body that is supporting the Saharawi refugees. He, the World Food Programme of, uh, as well, of course, as well as some other agencies, the European ECHO Fund has contributes to the food and so on. But uh, the UNHCR is is a major one. It has organized not only humanitarian aid in the camps, but it's organized visits between the camps and the occupied zone. So I'm just forgetting the 
what they call these visits, but they um, that they're supposed to be preparing for the coming together of the two populations to live in their own country. Uh, so they were aware of what's going on on both sides. And in that way, I think he understands it. I can't say, I do not know if, uh, where his sympathies lie, but one would expect that he would be, as a good member of the United Nations, he would be in favour of international law and not in favour of ad hoc ways of getting around it. And thanks to Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. It's coming up to well, nearly 5.30. In a moment we'll be hearing from Dr Ralph Newmark about the 40th anniversary of the Institute of Latin American Studies at La Trobe University. He is now the director of the Institute, looking at history and what's there now and looking to the future of the department at La Trobe. Freedom and safety are two of the most important values shared by our community. As the largest independent human rights organization for refugees and people seeking asylum in Australia, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre delivers more services on the ground and more free hours of support to where it's needed most. A donation of $20 to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre provides two weeks of food for a family over the holiday season. Please donate now at asrc.org.au or call 1-300-DONATE. The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre is a proud 3CR supporter. On the program last week, we heard the first part of an interview with Dr Ralph Newmark, the Director of the Institute of Latin American Studies at La Trobe University, which is celebrating its 40th birthday this year with events in the first three days of December. Ralph concluded last week's segment talking about his experiences in Nicaragua during the Civil War and his resolve that the pen is mightier than the sword and that he would go back to uni, if he survived, learn about this and educate others. So he's now back in Australia. You've graduated, you've become a casual tutor. What did you hope to inculcate into the students, though, was it more than the culture? Was it? I know now your interest is a lot of its music. Mm. Was that part of you at that time, or has that developed over the years? Okay, I can explain that. Yes, uh, as I said, when I went back, I uh, ended up doing another honours degree. Brazil was my area. I clearly went uh, because I was so engaged and interested. I think um, success is about passion. It's not smart dumb, it's about passion. And clearly went right through into the PhD in Brazilian studies uh, or history uh, on a particular president in Brazil called Getulio Vargas and uh, I went back thanks to La Trobe scholarship. Well, I had a government scholarship. Went back and went through his papers in um, in Rio de Janeiro. So you know, I graduated as a PhD, then started as a casual tutor as one usually does in academic places. Now, I was a political economic historian of Brazil. The story of Latin America, and I'm sad to say, is horrific. I mean, you know, it's one massacre after the other. It's one degradation of poverty after the other. Clearly, there are elites there that live utterly well. But if you look at the whole of society, starting with the 
colonial invasion by the Spanish and Portuguese. And, um, it is a story of despair, honestly. And when you go there, the differences between wealth and poverty are just stunning. I would just wish – and I suppose this is part of my motivation – that every Australian should go to – well, maybe you can go to India if you want to or uh, other developing countries, Africa. But my thing was Latin America. Now, the problem was if I'd named my subjects and the thing that really got us going and it was me and another recent PhD were that we started running the summer and winter schools. And this, of course, been a great contribution on, on pedagogically of the institute that it, it, it runs. Uh, we started to look at that third semester. This is a long time before it's – now it's really trendy, you know. So when you realise the academic year is really only 26 weeks, so there's another 26 weeks. So we pioneered this. And I realised that if I ran courses called the Political Economic History of Brazil, uh, not a lot of people through the door. I mean, we'd get some. But what I realised is that what Latin America in this despicable history of 500 years, if you like, of exploitation – the human spirit somehow has a way. I mean, slavery, I haven't even mentioned that. You know, I mean, all the things that went on there and indigenous um, exploitation and massacre. But out of this has come an extraordinary hybrid culture. So all Latin America, whether you can see it or not, is made up of indigenous, European and, of course, African. And this is even in countries where you don't think there are any Afro people of African descent, and I'm thinking here particularly Argentina, which had one-third of Buenos Aires was uh, African descent in the mid-19th century. Someone might ask, well, where are they now? Because they're not there. That's another story. But look, the point being that I understood the music, and then I worked on this and researched it, and basically I developed a unique, I would argue, methodology of teaching history through music. And I've won a few awards, you know, I don't want to go into that too much, but it's been recognised by federal government on some some awards, is that I teach, it's, it's not the history of the music, it's history through music. So you get the history of the music, but it's, it's using music to teach history. And, of course, if you look at each, virtually every country in Latin America there, through time, what's going on in terms of the political, economic, social change is expressed through music. I could give you some great examples if you'd like to know. Yeah, okay. Probably the one I love quoting because it so, seems so bizarre of the link. Because uh, can I just say to you, I'm not necessarily just talking about protest songs. In fact, very few of our students speak Portuguese, as you'd imagine, and even, well, a few more, but very few speak Spanish. Now, the lyrics, and of course, when lyrics are important, we translate them for them. But that's, I'm, I'm interested in sound the sound, because sound works on the brain. Music is a very interesting thing. It, it is independent. It's quite physiological. I mean, everyone in listening here would know moments when music has physically... I mean, the one I, I like to say things like, you, you know, can you imagine watching a film without music? Because the music actually dictates your mood. Through, It's not about words or anything necessarily. I mean, it's a different thing. So music's universal... It's physiological. It has an enormous impact on you. Now, the one I love is Bossa Nova. This is my example of history and music. If you listen to Bossa Nova, which I don't know if you're ever into it, but it sounds—it's it, all about—it's a soft, 
sort of jazzy, Brazilian, sexy sound. It's about the words girl from Ipanema, a garota de Ipanema, is the girl from Ipanema. It's about, well, you know, <laughs> sun, surf, sex, you know, pretty cool. What's so political about that, Rolf? Well, that's a good question. When you look at it and contextualise it, it actually tells us a lot. In 1954, the guy that I did my PhD on, President Getulio Vargas, committed suicide. It's very rare for heads of state to kill themselves. Very rare. <laughs> so I was actually attracted. That's why part of the reason I wanted to look at him. But there's more to it. It's not just a guy killing himself. What it was was that his model for Brazilian development involved industrialization in what we call consumer non-durables. In other words, he felt Brazil couldn't go on just being a coffee, sugar exporter, had to industrialise. Now, his industrialization involved what we call consumer non-durables, things like textiles, footwear, food processing. When he died, the person that took over, uh, and then ultimately the next president, so one was uh, Jean Café Filho and then Juscelino Kubitschek, decided to switch Brazilian industrialization to what we call consumer durable industrialization. So that means making things like cars, refrigerators, other uh, pharmaceuticals, other high, well, high profit on a level, but these are not what the average Brazilian would buy at that stage anyway, even today. These are for a new, what we called a internationally associated bourgeoisie. And they were people who'd buy the cars, uh, people who would say work for... I mean, the, the way they did it was direct foreign investment. And that means that they let... Uh, where Getulio was very cagey because he was an economic nationalist. He did all sorts of nationalistic things like not let foreign companies get into key areas like certain mining. Oil was the classic. You know, He, he established a um, state monopoly, Petrobras. He had minimum wages. He had profit remittance restrictions. I mean, you know, this is <laughs> the antithesis of what the US saw as an open world. But Kubitschek didn't. This was the guy who ultimately followed him. So what you got were what we call subsidiaries. So you got Ford, Du Brasil, General Electric, Du Brasil. You know, these are, in other words, foreign companies with... Subsidiaries. Now, the things they make are not for the average Brazilian. So what you got was an internationally associated bourgeoisie in Brazil, and what is there? They have a thing called something that not many Brazilians had before them except the real elite, leisure time. <laughs> not many Brazilians got a lot of leisure time in the sense that, well, I mean, they, they need to work or scrounge or, um, you know, they do party and drink if they can, but the point is it's about survival. So the people who were associated with this massive change in political, industrial political economy in Brazil, this is in the mid-50s, were the Bossa Nova people. And the music reflects that. So the southern suburbs of Rio, Copacabana, Ipanema, Leblanc, these are places where people who were part of that could actually you know, sit down and relax and play the music, the sound. It's a very sexy, it's a, it's a leisure sound. And so what I'm saying is that that music can lead us on to a discussion on the political economic changes in Brazil. And how much of that music in Latin America is from Africa? Well, virtually all. Uh, well, hang on. Except for the indigenous folk music, which, of course, 
exists to some extent. But everything emanating, if you like, from that period of um, 1492, long colonial period through to the 1800s, is all a mix. And even, as I said, tango's the best example because there are virtually... I mean, I, I don't know. I've been to Buenos Aires and you just don't see Afro-Argentinians. Yet tango, you see, you can take... You can write the Afro-Argentinians out of Argentinian history and that's backed up because you don't find... There are none there. Uh, no obvious ones. I'll tell you why they disappeared in a moment. But the point is... A school of Argentinian historiography says they never existed. And, of course, they don't want them to exist because, indeed, it is a country that does pride itself on its Europeanness and likes to differentiate itself from its great rival, Brazil, which can't hide the African influence in Brazil. I mean, but the point is tango, which is their national music, has candombe, which is a... African form that thrived in Buenos Aires in the 19th century. And this is really fascinating to me because, of course, you can take it out of the history, you can pretend it never happened, but the music preserves it. And I've given some lectures with many wonderful people from Argentina who are pretty affronted by this. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> Did you have any, any opposition to bringing that music focus into your teaching or is that well certainly not from my um, institute mm. absolutely not I mean what's really interesting is history has had a long uh, historiography if you like the study of history and the writing and teaching of history if you want to call it that is that you know in the old old days of course the only history that anyone cared about was elite history you know kings queens presidents you know bugger everyone else uh, even women don't exist unless they were a queen or well, there's no presidents yet in the US. But the point being that in the 60s and 70s, with the sorts of intellectual changes and radicalisation, you got the rise of alternative histories. I mean, you know, what about the people? I mean, it's the old history from the bottom. Every day, the everyday life. These were, and you know, many of the people who... Um, Social history. Yeah, I mean, and, and along with that was women's history. I mean, Latin American studies itself is part of that revolution because the idea was that, well, who cares? It was, you know, it's a poor colonial, neo-colonial area. Who, who cares a damn about it? So in that idea of, well, social but also, in a sense, political and economic contexts of that, you know, in other words, it's a package but from below. Now, of course, then people say, well, popular culture... Who cares about that? That's, you know, music, uh, film, sport. I mean, these are things, uh, these are cultural manifestations that are, take up a lot of energy of a lot of people and actually are linked to the major changes in history. So there became, you know, in a way, by, by me embracing music, even though it wasn't my initial study, but I've always loved jazz and stuff like that, so, you know, I understand it quite well. It was accepted because it was an era where, well, popular culture has become food. There's another one. I mean, how basic, and, you know, food studies used to be seen as, you know, you weren't a real academic if you studied food history or you know, music. Uh, you're, not, you know, you're not legit. That's all changed, thank goodness. What sort of other changes have you seen at the Institute over those years? Well, I think the major changes clearly were the thriving of our summer and winter schools. Mm -hmm. 
one thing we've always had, and I mean, this is what we're very proud of, uh, even though the numbers, I mean, many of the greats that I mentioned earlier have, of course, retired. And so uh, we've always, as, but look, this is universal in all unis, the, uh, there's staff shortages. We make do, but it's, you know, we're not the only one. I mean, I'm, all unis have suffered this sort of idea of, well, government uh, money uh, with being withdrawn and uh, staff reductions. However, we still soldier on, as they say, and I mean, we have a very rich program of regular seminars, symposia. We have close relationships with the diplomatic corps. We have round tables when something big happens, like a coup in Brazil, which we had <laughs> three weeks ago. Well, actually, during the Olympics, if you remember, we had a, a round table discussing the issues. So we're sort of like, um, uh, we have lots of postgraduate students uh, studying all sorts of... You bring um, lecturers from overseas? Well, over the years, we've had some very eminent, and in fact, some of them are coming, uh, returning for our anniversary. The, the most outstanding example would be Alan Knight, who is arguably um, one of the great Mexican historians of Mexico. He's an Oxford, uh, he's now emeritus professor at Oxford. But uh, over the years, we've had extraordinary uh, number of visiting fellows and visiting lecturers. I mean, we are, in a sense, and I'm you know, very proud to say, we are the hub, if you like, and have been for 40 years of Latin American studies. Spanish has thrived. I mean, some, a lot of language and literature departments uh, do have cultural studies. But in terms of history, I think we still pretty much the leader there. Have you managed over the years to keep in touch with some of your students and found out that they've followed in your footsteps in, in certain yeah. ways? Uh, well, we're very, very, very keen uh, on our graduates. I mean, clearly we tend to focus more on the PhD graduates. But by the way, I mean, what's interesting is that whether you know, the number of people who s concentrate on Latin American studies as a major is not really the point because we have had, I think, you know, 10 of thousands of students doing our subjects and the point that's what it's really about of our majors and phds we have some very outstanding many of them have gone on to get lectureships and beyond all over the world in europe germany probably one of our favorites that we should be here for the anniversary is uh, a woman who's become an ambassador for Australia. She's just completed a, um, a stint as Australian ambassador in Ireland. My point is that and this is something we've got to think about, is that in such a, a changing world, under the sort of neoliberal rubric, an arts degree is really something valuable. I mean, a lot of, you know, in the old days where people said, well, vocation, what are you going to do type thing? The thing about it is, is that we teach analytical um, thinking, critical analysis, uh, communication in terms of written and uh, verbal skills. We actually teach people how to learn. And I would say that our graduates, actually, even though they may never become Latin Americanists, are in fact very valuable people to employ because they can be trained you know, 10, 15,000 times over, depending on changing circumstances. So my point is that, and why not enjoy or get passionate acquiring those skills? I mean, clearly the argument that this is not an area where there is immediate employment as such is quite fallacious, actually, because it's about engagement and passion and gaining skills. And I think this is where arts degrees, 
I mean, I used to, as a science person, I used to see arts as a bit of an indulgence. Now I see it as an absolute necessity. I think all scientists should do an arts degree because science is fascinating, but without a social historical context, it can be very dangerous. I mean, you don't have to look at Einstein's matters. And, I mean, all science is in a community. You know, it might be fascinating what you read because you hand it to the politicians ultimately. And that's why, in a sense, I'm an absolute convert to an arts sector. Science and arts, I think you need both. I think everyone should do an arts degree, to be honest. I'm not just saying it. But just teaching young people about the you know the conflicts the victories the everything that's gone on in Latin America that they would probably never have no. thought about and known about in their younger life I don't think anyone would dispute with me that the loser of World War 2 was Britain and that the winner was the United States ultimately Latin America's interesting because Latin America's had interaction with the United States for since 1800, I mean, basically 200 more years, whereas most countries haven't had a very intimate relationship with the United States since World War II, when they sort of took over, so to speak. That actually makes Latin America very interesting because it's dealt with the now main power, incumbent power, and it knows it very well. And, I mean, the US has interfered in Latin America continuously. The point is that if you look at today's world and you say, well, we're doing okay, we meaning the world, it's pretty hard to really uh, justify that. I mean, clearly, 200-odd years of industrialization have brought this planet to its knees ecologically. And Latin America is a classic example. I mean, in the middle of it's got Amazonia, which really is the last bastion of hope, I think, in a, in a fossil fuel-driven industrial world. So we've got to really, that makes it very important. The other thing, of course, is that Latin America encapsulates all that difference between developed and underdeveloped. And if you say that the world is suffering, as it still is, of continual conflict, racism, which I think is one of the most devastating constructions by humanity. I mean, it's a myth. Race does not exist. It's a creation. We're all the same species. I mean, it's just absolutely, you can't uh, deny that. But race counts a lot. And because it was a constructed uh, in the 19th century, which was very much used to rationalise colonialism. And, of course, there's a conflict, environmental degradation, and the big one, poverty. I mean, if anyone can sit in Australia and say, well, look, I'm okay, I'm all right, Jack, or I'm okay, Jack, whatever, just travel for a while, because clearly the issue is that, well, we don't have to travel, by the way, we have a third world here. So go maybe to the Northern Territory, and this is a great disgrace for this country, that we still have people living in... Well, like people, well, poor people in Latin America. Or, um, but I'm saying, you know, I mean, we're one global family. If we don't actually see ourselves globally and imply that locally, if you like, we're doomed. I mean, it's quite, this is not academic. Uh, you know, if, you, if people see academic work as not relevant, it's bloody relevant. And I think that's what I try to, to show the students, that they are part of a whole social ecosystem that their behaviour and their thoughts are not sustainable unless they think on a global level. This is really important because there are more billionaires in the world than ever. And in fact, if you look at, I mean, fairly 
traditional type economist, Thomas Piketty, I think he's in Australia at the moment. I mean, this bloke is clearly saying that the, the sustainability of the neoliberal model where the rich are getting richer and the people, the old middle class, are starting to you know, drop down, whatever you think of it is it's just it can't be sustained. People who, and the winners, the ones who are in the small group of very wealthy people, they can't rest easy. Because when you're in a country, you know, where we're an exaggerated, like in Brazil, the wealthy people live behind walls with guards. Um, I even know of certain Brazilians who've moved to Australia because they, they were just so nervous of their kids going to school, kidnapping. When you have seething poverty... Even if you're the winner, you're not poor, you're doing... In fact, if you're really comfortable, well, more than that, if you're rich, is that ultimately someone will come jump over that fence and they're desperate. I mean, if you can't feed your children, if you've got sewage running down the, the main street, you have nothing to lose. So it's in everyone's interests that we have a more equitable world and that the resources and, um, are shared more evenly. Tell me about the preparations for the 40th anniversary and what you hope to achieve in those three days in early December. Well, I think very much an acknowledgement of the past, uh, the achievements, and but very much ongoing into the future, so sort of past, present and future type of thing. We start on uh, at our city campus in Franklin Street on Thursday, December the 1st. What we're having here is... We're going to kick off with a Cuban round table. I mean, clearly Cuba, most extraordinary country in Latin America, and for all sorts of reasons, it's, it's, it's amazing social experiments in, in terms of literacy, health, education. But of course, economically, they are, and one can't not be a little bit critical, that they didn't really diversify their economy in that those periods where, well, you know, there was one country, the Soviet Union, buying their sugar because the sugar is 500 years old. The problem with, with Cuba is you can't overturn 500 years in 50. It really is not easy when you have deeply entrenched political economy. In Cuba's case, sugar, sugar, sugar. Industrialization is not a quick process. You can't overturn racism that's entrenched in a former slave colony it's, now, the government has tried. I mean, it was, uh, there was no impediment to anyone of colour going anywhere in Cuba, like rising or doing uni, whatever, and women. I mean, they even tried, if you might remember, in 1975 to bring in the Family Act, which mandated men doing domestic work. Did it work? No. <laughs> now, the point is, but the thing I is, I mean, at least the government's showing young boys... This is something that's important, but it's not easy when Dad doesn't do anything. So what I'm trying to say is that you know, Cuba's a very interesting country. Tourism is back too much, in my view. And, of course, this is going to be about the rapprochement with the United States. So Cuba's very important. So we're going to have that uh, on day one, and then we're going to finish the day with a very interesting woman from Peru, Nelida Silva, who is, in fact, a folkloricist, and she's going to actually run a workshop on Andean uh, folk music and folk dance. 
Next day, we start proper out at La Trobe in Bandura. That's Friday, December the 2nd. And we have a line-up. Our biggest um, event on that day will be paying tribute to the great people uh, who have been part of the Institute. So there'll be tributes in terms of well, basically the story of Eyelash. So people like Barry will be talking about the foundation, the genesis, Rowan, other people who, Rowan Island, who will talk about the early days. I mean, they were there. Then uh, we'll talk about the formation of the Australasian Latin American Association, which Eyelash was very much part of. It's called ALASA the Association of Iberian and Latin American Studies of Australasia, and, of course, our wonderful journal that we edited at La Trobe for about 13 years now comes out of the Sydney area. Uh, some of our um, early PhD graduates, um, will Mary Aitken and uh, Heidi Zogbaum, people who've passed through our system and gone on to great things, and then talk about what we do now and our plans for the future. So it's going to be, I suppose, it's a tribute and uh, celebration. And then, of course, we start the conference proper, which will be academic papers from all the people, well, uh, people all over Australia and many of us, culminating in basically a, um, a dinner. Finally, Ralph, I'd imagine that, in a sense, La Trobe's been your second home. Mm. You must have made so many friends done so many things. Did it lead you to go overseas again and meet more people through your studies and your work at the university? Well, absolutely. I mean, when, uh, I mean, part of the problem is, you know, when one is working very hard, I mean, getting time off to go back to the heartland of one's uh, research interest, which is Brazil, has not been an easy thing, to be totally honest. I think keeping the, uh, I am planning to go back. I mean, I've been to Brazil before, of course, a couple of times. But it's clearly, but the people I've met, I mean, the answer to that is absolutely, it's been extraordinary of people overseas and passing through Melbourne. Uh, and of course, got me going to conferences as well. You know, it's just been, um, an absolutely extraordinary experience. And I suppose when I was a microbiologist looking at effluent <laughs> many years ago, I would have thought, wow. I never thought it would end up like this. And um, as I said, it's, it's, it's a labour of... Well, as I said, I, it's something very passionate. It's not just an interest. It is, as I said, a social justice. I'm driven by that, to be honest. And it, in a sense, it's a tribute to the people at La Trobe who mm -hmm. allowed this institute to be created. Absolutely. I want to, and by the way, I, I think I should have mentioned that the Maya Foundation, who have been around a long time, they, uh, way back in 76, gave Trobe the money to get this going. So it was very phil philanthropic. So that was something. But yeah, no, I think I'm mean, Trobe Uni, I mean, I've got to say, as I said, I was an old Melbourne guy, was just the most exciting place. All unis clearly have suffered from the reduction in government spending and we've had to find ways and it's not easy. I mean this is not just our uni but all unis and my view is I really think the governments need to rethink this because Australia has lost its manufacturing. They talk about a clever country but education is the most important area I would argue in a deindustrializing society like Australia. I mean, it's all very well to dig up the, 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 the iron ore 
which we seem to have gone back to as a, as a sole source. But really, it's the brain power. And I mean, they give lip service, but and I'm criticising all governments here. It's not just the present one. That they have to really put their money where their mouth is in terms of education. And I think there have been a few, a lot of mistakes with this in certain expenditures, but clearly established universities are the, are the places where legitimate unis is where this should happen, not maybe private fly-by-night places. I think we've got to work together. As I said, we've got a big challenge, and the challenge really is making this planet that we uh, exist on, and, and by the way, not just humans. I think I'm very big on that we are responsible. I mean, we've, we've taken an arrogance that we control the ecosystem and animals are ours somehow just like anything that we can use. I'm a great believer, in fact, that the animals have these full rights. My view is if we're going to use them, it has to be done in a humane way and properly. But by the way, if the Amazon goes and we just go on like this, even the cockroaches will disappear. <laughs> so, you know, it's big, it's big. this is a serious matter. Well, all I can say now is congratulations on your wonderful contribution to La Trobe over many years. Thank you very much. And that was Dr Ralph Newmark talking about the 40th anniversary and what's been happening with the Institute of Latin American Studies at La Trobe University. And we all say happy birthday to them all at La Trobe. That's all from me for today. I will be back next week at four o'clock. Done by Laura, we're here in about one and a half minutes time. Bye for now.